Welcome to a special Power of Human Capital Cliff Central podcast. I'm Timothy Maurice Webster, and this two-part series is pioneered by and in collaboration with Duke Corporate Education. With my interest in the neuroscience of human behavior, I approached Duke CE in an effort to explore their global leadership approach, a human-centric approach designed to help organizations and their talent lead and navigate increasing complexity. After sitting with their leadership team in South Africa, we decided the best place to begin this journey of understanding the power and future of human capital was at their second Davos of Human Capital Conference held in Johannesburg, South Africa. Before we dive into this two-part Power of Human Capital series, I must share that I was born and raised not far from Duke's extraordinary campus in North Carolina. In fact, my uncle went to Duke and is a judge in the same region. So I'm very familiar with Duke's heritage of rigor and capacity to develop and export leaders around the world. The Davos of Human Capital Conference was the brainchild of Sharmila Chetty, president of Global Markets. Sharmila's vision of bringing leaders together from every sector, from educators to senior corporate leaders, and perhaps as impressive as having Sophia the Robot as speaker, was the fact that she and her team managed to stream the conference's content to over a million young people across South Africa as well as other parts of the world. Her vision of ensuring the extraordinary content made it out of the conference venue into the promising minds of future leaders, the youth, was amazing. We'll hear from the partners at Million Young Minds who helped make this happen in episode two. In this special two-part series exploring the insights and learning of the future of human capital, we're going to hear from industry leaders, Duke's phenomenal global team, as well as attendees, and how they plan to take the conference content forward. We begin with three of Duke's CE's international leaders, Adam Kingle, Regional Managing Director in Europe, Jeremy Cordy, Client Director based in London, and then we cut to John Davis, Regional Director based in Singapore. Adam shares how he believes South Africa is well-placed to host the Human Capital Conference and topics ranging from global diversity to collective wisdom. Meet Adam Kingle. So how are you loving South Africa? I'm loving it. Yeah, this is my second time here. Um, I was speaking with some colleagues outside before the event began, and this was it was his first time. Um, and he's, it was funny. Uh, I don't think this had anything to do with the theme of the program, but he said the main thing that he picked up on when he was here so far was humanity. He was like, you just get a stronger sense of humanity when you're here, um, which I think is an interesting position in a conference when we're talking about sure, the effect of sure. digital and robotics sure. and whether there's a trade-off between the two. Yeah, you think about like almost every country in the world or every has some sort of identity. Like yeah. if you think of, you know, like the West in America or China, you know, they have clear identity. And I do think South Africa yes. has that sort of humanity as this kind of anchoring part of its yeah. identity. Completely. What are you looking forward to in this conference? Uh, well, I'm really looking forward to hearing Sophia. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very interested in that. And uh, this is uh, certainly new for me as well. So one thing that I'm that I'm trying going to be trying to figure out. <laughs> I don't know if, if I'll get the answer. I might have to ask Dr. Hansen afterward. Is how much of her response is a spontaneous response, i.e., you know, AI yeah. versus a pre-programmed, sure. which obviously we had 
decades ago, you know, when we had animated robots in Disneyland and Chuck E. Cheese and, and all the rest. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, there must be some sort of weight, maybe 30 percent. Mm. That'll be interesting to find out as well. And your position in the, in the UK, tell us about, about your role and what you're hoping to achieve. Sure. So I'm the uh, regional managing director for Europe. So I look after Europe on behalf of, of Duke okay. Corporate Education. Um, and Europe is going through a really interesting time right now. And interesting in the sense that, therefore, I think it's really useful for someone to be involved in corporate development and executive development because companies are struggling with convulsions, political, obviously, particularly in the UK, right, where we have Brexit, um, but also economic convulsions of how Eastern Europe plays with Western Europe. And all of this ultimately is going to come down to a level setting of human capacity and human capability, um, hopefully to create not just prosperity but mobility. I, you know, the EU. Um, you know, I, I I'm going to reveal you know what maybe what I think about Brexit here, but I <laughs> but but the EU was a fantastic experiment in humankind to say. Can we, um, can we maximize the capability of our knowledge? And, and that, I think that really happens with mobility. Sure. Um, so what I'm trying to do is to enhance our innovation. Um, uh, because I think companies are always struggle with the trade-off and it hap- it, this discussion happened in the, in the conference just now. The trade-off between short-term and long-term. Yes. Right. Yes. The short-term exploit, get your EBITDA over the line for the end of your financial year. The long-term, we always have to be thinking about, about what's next. So I think part of my job is to find the balance between that for Duke CE. And I think it's probably more heavily weighted toward what's new, what's next, because why else would clients want, want to work with us? Sure. Certainly not to tell them what they already know. Sure. It's unbelievable how Duke has evolved into being known for rigor. I mean, yep. it's a quality. Mm-hmm. Quality is, is at the core, the essence. You know, sort of balancing this sort of rigor while, buying, while being agile to be able to address kind of emerging needs, that is a bit of a challenge. It is, yes. Yeah. I think and, – and the way that, I, that I've tried to address that is thinking about, well, how can we very quickly, for example, get uh, – do survey data, for example, if we want to get a sense of where executives are, you know, on a spectrum in an area like, you know, I don't know, um, how important is technology, right, to, sure, to your company sure, right sure, now? Sure, sure. Um, but we can – and Gallup is, is, is another good example of an organization that does this quite well, where we can very quickly scale up and give rigor through volume of information. That It's something that we're kind of well-positioned to do versus um, – you know, going through the the eternal multi-year process of a peer-reviewed academic journal, sure, right? Where sure, sure. this will only be available to the world a decade from now. So it's a really <laughs> difficult position. You know, it's a tricky but fun position to be in to say, well, how can we do practitioner-focused research now to share that with our clients immediately? And then how can we um, uh, distribute, if you will, exploit in, in the positive sense of the word – um, academic research as soon as it becomes available. Sure. And that's a bit of a translation. Sure. Um, but I think it's a fun, it's a fun opportunity, not, not, not a challenge for us. So it's our own exploit explore, yeah. uh, challenge. One, one of the 
one of the sort of celebrated academics at Duke, uh, I think in the business school is Dan uh, O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his work on sort of behavior science and, um, you know, decision making. How would you say the sort of decision making or if you look at your kind of global footprint, if you look at the sort of mind and the leaders in Europe versus Africa versus the East versus the West, is that something that you guys sort of celebrate is the differences of these different regions? Yeah, well, we certainly know that that it, it's a big way in which companies make decisions differently, which has to do a bit with cultural norms, yes, right? Yes. Collective versus, you know, the person on top, mm. um, hierarchy, collective wisdom, etc. Um, and I think that affects how how companies develop their people and how quickly they can develop their people. So, I th- for example, what, you know, when often co- companies come to us and they say, you know, we need to get our executive team together to make a decision. And if it's a long-term decision, like evaluating, say, your mission and values, generally the first question I ask is, all right, well, how many 20-something-year-old employees are going to be on this committee? Because ah. probably the answer is initially none. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, I think here's an example where in decision-making, you could – I try to tell clients you could do a bit more crowdsourcing here, right? <laughs> Particularly if you're trying to set up the future, right? Yeah, the values yeah, that are going to – sculpt and inform everything you do for the next 30 years, maybe ask people who might still be around 30 years from now instead of uh, the people who are two years away from sure. retirement. <laughs> and and I, by the way, I am not, not being prejudiced against old people yeah, here, yeah. <laughs> just between you and me. That's uh, truly, I'm not. Yeah. Um, but I think that, 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 that's certainly one thing. I think the other, the, the other thing is when, when companies ask us, you know, to help them with decision making, it's a really interesting concept is, so how do we share information about the rigor of decision making? So decision making tools, uh, you know, like Monte Carlo simulations, et cetera. And, um, how do we help people tap into, as I mentioned, collective wisdom, but also instinct? You know, often executives say, well, you know, when I make a major decision, ultimately it comes down to gut. But the thing is with gut is gut is probably experience. Uh, you know, it's not like some kind of divine intervention. Sure, uh, sure, there's sure, something sure. in there that actually is worth yeah. noting. Yeah. And that's what, that's what particularly makes the field des- decision making fascinating because it's a bit of an art and a bit of a science. Yeah. There's a lot of priming. There's a lot of unconscious influences that influence yeah. that. But I think the kind of, when you think about the gut, it's often semantics. People get caught up in the emotions of the word. Right. You know, looking forward, over the next sort of, I mean, you mentioned sort of the challenge that Europe faces. Um, schools, programs like that Duke offers, it's extraordinary how you can play a role mm-hmm. in this. What do you celebrate the most about your role in the ability mm. to impact society? Yeah. Um, truly, I think it's that we enable um, human-centric leaders. Because I think that the challenge... Europe faces, but there are other regions of the world where this is true as well, is volatility. Yeah. And in volatile times, I think what's going to be the solution will be bringing up, bringing forward all those qualities that make us human to help navigate those turbulent waters. Things like inspiration, creativity, um, you know, those are the things that people look for as a through line to help them through darker times. Yeah. Um, and 
so I think Duke is differently positioned. Duke CE is about human-centric leadership, not all the vast disciplines that a business school can offer um, because we're dealing with more fundamental issues rather than, for example, come to us to do a mini-MBA, which I'm not denigrating, but um, I think we have a, a, a more macro purpose and, and, and that's helping organizations navigate. And navigation is, a, is, a, is, a, is ultimately an emotional challenge, yeah. right? Because when people are anxious they're af- um, and afraid, they're wondering, well, what can I tap into? Well, you know, think about why you have a team in the first place. If you just wanted to go into business because you like business or you needed to make a living, you could, you, you could have a little startup, right? Develop a side hustle, have a website and move on. But, you know, so, so instead, you know, I think what, what we're doing is trying to help organizations say, well, think about what's special about your people. Tap into that and try to focus and expand that capability. It's, you know, if we were to think about an ambassador, a political leader who could be seen as sort of an ambassador of Duke CE, it would be someone like South Africa's own Nelson Mandela. That's right. Human That's right. I mean, he navigated this country through some very turbulent times. Yeah. Focusing on the core of humanity and what, That's we, right. were, what we all had in common. Yeah. And I think he, th- he was a wonderful example of, um, he validated the concept yeah. that humanity helps navigate volatility. One of the most extraordinary aspects of Duke CE's regional directorship and client team is just how many are prolific thought leaders. My next conversation is with Jeremy Cordy, a thought leader who has written 27 books, which have been translated into 16 languages. We open up the chat about his passion for helping others explore their potential, and then he shares what gets he and his team out of bed. I think for us, uh, for me personally, actually, leadership is about providing support and challenge. I, I would take issue slightly with churning out content. I think it is about finding ways to help people achieve their potential. Um, I think if we do that, we all benefit. I think uh, individuals benefit. I think businesses benefit. And I think societies benefit. And we see that. And, and when societies are at peace and are able to, to provide that content, that support and challenge um then i think we're all in a better place and that's really that's really what we're about here at duke i mean our our purpose at duke the thing that gets us all out of bed in the morning is uh preparing leaders for what's next preparing leaders for the opportunities and challenges of the future so that's uh and that's a privilege that's something we all enjoy doing if you look back at some of your early work to now how much have things changed in the human capital space? Yeah, and, well, uh, hugely, I would say. Um, so, uh, plus ça change, plus ça même chose, isn't it? Some things change hugely, some things are, are eternal and perennial. But uh, let's talk about what's changed, uh, the ways we can reach people, the ways we can connect with people. Uh, and when I, you know, earlier in my career, um, 
there used to be talk about learning styles and let's find the best way for people to embrace subjects and to learn. Now, with technology, we can do that so, so much better. And as we look at, at kids and, you know, I have nieces and nephews who are not yet in double figures and they're kind of um, learning and enjoying learning uh, by embracing technology. So that's probably the biggest change we've seen. But there are many other changes when it comes to human capital. Just the way, what, one of the great aspects of leadership is the ability to connect with people, the, the ability to build relationships and build trust. Uh, technology is a huge enabler of that. So uh, that context is different, but I would argue that the need, the need to connect with people, the need to understand and have empathy and all of those things, build trust, uh, that's as strong as it's always been. So that's a perennial, but with a new context. Um, and I think that's what that's what we're seeing. A lot of the uh, most important things like learning, like connecting with people, like developing our skills and preparedness, and, and even something like shifting a mindset, that's an amazing thing that we can do now uh, by embracing technology, understanding, you know, through neuroscience, how the human brain works, and then um, tailoring what we do to help people with, sure. you know, some of the, the shifts that will support them. You're in quite a privileged position, you, when I say you meaning Duke, in that you're able to sort of sit at a grassroots level and engage people. Um, when it comes to who is the Duke consumer, share in your mind who you see as that that's a that's a tough one isn't it because there are so my background is a little bit um marketing i would say and i my first um thought is that that would segment there probably isn't a typical consumer i think as we look at the history of well it would be both marketing but i think also learning it is about segmentation and i think that's what technology gives us the ability to understand um, what are the broad themes? So I've touched, for example, on the need to shift mindset, not only give people, not only train them in terms of giving them the skills, but actually help them in terms of giving them the, the preparedness, the, the way of approaching issues. Uh, I, there's a great Mark Twain quote I love, which is, um, uh, it's not what we know that matters, uh, but uh, what we know that just ain't so. That's what Mark Twain said. <laughs> I've kind of twisted that. And that Duke, we, we kind of prefer to say it isn't what we know that matters. Uh, it's how we react to what we don't know. It's that openness, that mindset. Thanks so much, Jeremy. These human potential conversations continue to evolve in the vein of consistency and inspiration. Next, I chat to John Davies, regional director based in Singapore. John's passion for global leadership and Asia's role in the world was incredibly insightful. Our role is, is, is broader than just Singapore itself, and, and yet it, the influence that the country has had in the way we look at helping organizations and their leaders within embrace and adapt to the world of changing technologies is certainly profound. Uh, and we learn a lot of lessons from our colleagues and counterparts and other companies in Singapore. Uh, we see a lot of the same tensions across the region, uh, countries from Thailand to Malaysia to Japan to you name it in the Middle East, Leaders are facing some common challenges, and that is how do we adjust to the world of changing technology like we're learning here at the conference today, the Davos of Human Capital. There's a great deal of fear and anxiety out there about technology. Is it going to replace people? I think the short answer is no. Is it complementary to what we do? Yes. And it's that tension between how we shift from a world of what we've always done to this world of technology that we're certainly facing in Asia. And Singapore is, is, is a very good representation of how sure. that blend is, is working. So we find it influencing our work across the region. So 
across the across the region where you are operating, there are you must have I won't say favorites, but when you are traveling traversing this region, what are some of your highlights across the region in terms of engaging the people when you're in India versus Japan, you have a different it's sort of a different kind of feel. Yeah. Share a little bit about your experience in the yeah, region. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right about that. It is a different sort of a feel from country to country, whether it's India on one end of the spectrum to China on the other end of the spectrum to Thailand and Malaysia. What is what is characteristically unique about the region is the sheer diversity of cultural DNA that does differ across. So it's hard to say there's a common point of view. With that said, the language of business and the needs of business are quite clear. It's obvious that businesses share common uh, challenges. There's no question about it. But it's then incorporating those challenges uh, into the context of that difference within a country. And so you'll have uh, in Malaysia, which is predominantly an an Islamically driven or based country, versus Thailand, which may be more Buddhist in terms of religious background. That does have influence uh, in terms of how people integrate and incorporate and bring to life leadership in their context. Whereas in Singapore, you've got much more of a pragmatic kind of a business point of view. Uh, India, you've got this unusually rich blend across all of those spectrums. It's not all just religiously driven. Um, And the sum total of it is you see people, I think, wrestling with how do we take what we know to be ourselves in a way we have been raised and fit into a world that is increasingly complex, uh, dealing with issues around technology, dealing with issues around agility, dealing with issues around innovation, and, and trying to reconcile the, the inherent tension that arises from the fact that we will never have all the answers, that leaders today feel less secure than ever and more anxious than ever because of this maelstrom of different inputs and influences that are affecting them. And that transcends the unique cultural uh, aspects of those societies within. Yeah, I'm sure the more you travel, the more you realize that there are some some tangible uh, aspects of human nature that are the same. Yes, and when you look at the work that is that Duke is doing in your region mm-hmm. specifically, you know there are many there are many good quality business schools that aren't able to succeed in those regions. Right? Why do you think Duke is able to succeed? Yeah, it's uh, it, it, we've worked hard at it. I mean, for twenty years almost as a, as an institution worldwide, Duke CE has endeavored to be very smart and intelligent and contextually aware of what's going on in each of those markets. So we have offices, as you know, in six markets around the world. And our, our point of view there is not to transplant people from the U.S. into those markets, although certainly I'm from the U.S., but I was there prior <laughs> to even being with Duke. Um, it's, it's more about what do we know about each of those markets because we have people in those markets working for us in those offices. Um, and that gives us a great deal more awareness. So Duke's, I think, point of view is unique because, look, we've done work in over 80 countries around the world. And there's 250,000 leaders we've had the good fortune to touch during that span of time. It's hard not to absorb some level of understanding about the nuance across markets. And our presence in those markets does make a difference. Uh, Does that make us completely unique? I think more and more companies are recognizing that you need to be able to do that. We've just had the good fortune to have, have found our way into that pathway over the last 20 years. And as a result, I think our clients really appreciate that that point of view. I mean, honestly, I'm having more fun in my career than I've ever had before because of the richness and diversity of the different places where we work, meeting great people like yourself um, and the people we get to work with. And I know that sounds like a commercial. It's not meant. It really is true. After I finished my chat with John, it was lunchtime. 
So my producer, C and I head outside to chat to a few conference attendees about how they were experiencing the conference. Okay, so we caught up with Tracy Pinard Apsa looking after leadership and learning. How are you enjoying the conference? Again, I think uh, Duke year on year has just exponentially changed and as a thought leader and bringing us as a community together to really reshape our organizations. So compliments to them. I think the, the morning session has been invigorating. The conversation is, is correct. And I think it's the networking now over lunch and us as a community realizing that what we're trying to solve for is very similar and how can we learn the lessons from each other in order to make the change and impact we want. From an APSA perspective, what are you looking forward to in terms of taking back to your organization to help elevate your talent to the to be able to grapple and deal with and thrive in the future? I think what was impactful for me is our purpose is around bringing individuals' possibilities to life in in what we want to realize in our markets. Um, and I think for us today, it's about accelerating. What, what's confirmed for me is that our thinking is right, but our action needs to be accelerated. And I think we need to do less in order to be more impactful. Tabitha Make? Okay, you are with Anglo-American? Yes, correct. And how are you enjoying this Davos Human Capital event so far? I am immensely enjoying it, uh, specifically taking note of what Unilever has shared with us in terms of recruitment. I'm in the human capital space, and I think I would want to have that implemented in my area of, of work. And what are you looking forward to at the highest level, taking back with you to Anglo? Um, incorporating um, human experience with the... Uh, with the machines, which is cobots. So that is what I want us to do. Uh, we, we are highly mechanistic environment. So if we can just upskill our people to actually operate the machines that are working underground on the surface. We're here with Lloyd Mahange from NetBank. What do you have to say about this morning's event? How are you experiencing the Duke, you know, human capital event? I think it's quite uh, uh, more eye-opening. What it basically uh, says to us is that uh, we need to embrace uh, technology and not being afraid of it. And we need to take advantage because uh, technology, as much as we, we come with it, it also creates jobs. And it has got the ability to reskill our workforce so that we can move towards the first world and become more competitive. A quick note. When people saw the Roman mic, they volunteered to come speak on air. The next person who commented is Leone Krobla from a competing business school even. This connection of like-minded individuals from different kind of industries, which I find really, really exciting and interesting. Um, the speakers have been absolutely phenomenal. I think what also lends to this whole... Um, experience that they've created is the whole atmosphere you know if you walk around there's a maze um, that you can go through a lot of interactive stuff uh, it's just um, an incredible space it's, it's incredibly creative and I think for a learning institution it's wonderful to be part of of something new and interesting and to see how we can incorporate some of these ideas in in our learning and in our academic program so it's been phenomenal I'm absolutely loving it we're here with Shirley Zen and Bridget Dagama how are you guys experiencing, we'll start with you, Shirley. How are you guys experiencing the event so far? I think it's an absolutely amazing event. There's a lot of energy, a lot of vibe, a lot of real stories, a lot of great case studies, um, a lot of examples being properly demonstrated through practical, you know, what is 
what is possible in terms of, you know, does this work? And I think some really good messages in terms of, you know, the H in human and putting that back from a humanizing point of view, creating organizations where technology and, and human beings can interact and engage in a way that will take us forward. And, and really challenging our thinking around fourth industrial revolution and how we learn and how we grow and how we, you know, build organizations that's future fit. So I think that it's really, um, Lift me very energized and inspired um, in terms of what truly is possible in this new world of work that we find ourselves. And Bridget, you know, both of you guys work and associate with global organizations. Do you see that this conversation is relevant for you in a global organization? Absolutely. Um, as in any global organization, my organization is transforming. So the conversation could not be more relevant. If you look at our restaurants now, um, we now have the ability for people to order at the kiosk without even interacting with the human being. So we're transforming and this conversation is absolutely relevant. And I also think the speakers, the quality of the speakers was fantastic. For me, this whole conversation is thought-provoking because I've got to think about how I prepare my organization for the future. What do I need to be doing now? And to come here and have this conversation, these new ideas, these thoughts, that's absolutely amazing. When lunch ended, I wanted to continue my exploration of collecting human capital insights by speaking to someone on the ground incorporating the human-centered philosophy on a daily basis. So I sat down with Imbali Magodulela from Sibanye Stillwater. Here's what she's doing. What we have done is that we've also reviewed our whole recruitment system. This paper work applications is no longer applicable, so it's in a paperless environment. So we've uh, partnered with the, with the system provider that um, is assisting us with that. For example, in a learning and development space, um, when we advertise for uh, human resources development interventions like learnerships or bursaries, we would get thousands of applications, five, six thousands, and it will take us weeks to manually select and shortlist. Now, with the page up system, that's the name of the system, automatically it shortlists the candidates. So our recruitment process is now fast-tracked. After speaking with Mbali, I couldn't think of a better way to end episode one of this two-part series than with Anne-Valerie Corbel, another of Duke CE's education leaders, a best-selling author focusing on innovation, design thinking, change management, and more. Anne-Valerie consults with leadership teams to create learning journeys, and as she shares, she has a global upbringing which uniquely positions her. Enjoy. Originally, I come from Switzerland. But I grew up all over the world. My dad wanted to show us different cultures of the world. So my first expatriation was South Africa. I moved here when I was five, uh, stayed five years, then moved to Iraq, Indonesia, Turkey, before going back to Switzerland to study. Most of my career has been in academia with different institutions, business schools around the world. And then back in 2009, I wanted to give back. I felt I received a lot from the world. I felt very grateful for my career. So I started a social enterprise with a, an ex-colleague of mine from Harvard. 
and we worked with migrant workers, and that was probably one of the most meaningful two years of my life. And that's where I started being interested in social innovation and entrepreneurship and micro-entrepreneurship. So I studied that more specifically. And I've found that the applications work across borders, across organizations, across cultures. It's, it's um, empathy, innovation is part of our DNA. That's what makes us unique as a species. We innovate ourselves out of problems. Your extraordinary sort of background, I mean, not every person can say they've lived in so many different parts of the world and so experienced so many different types of people. How has that inspired you to think about inclusion, diversity in these conversations? Well, I think what's interesting is that at some point in time in my life, I didn't understand that diversity could be a problem for someone. So when you grow up in the way that I grew up, and I've lived in Singapore for 10 years, um, you don't see why people should see difference. You, you become completely blind to it. So I think that's an advantage. I think living in so many different cultures also helps you understand that there's a million and one ways to solve a problem. So if you walk into a room and the door locks behind you, then you don't say, oh, well, the door was the only exit. Maybe I can go through the window. Maybe I can go through. So there's lots of doors open to you. And, and the beauty of, of that multicultural, diverse approach and the one that we're encouraging in organizations today is to say there's lots of different doors. Sure. So while in your world, because of how you sort of have self-educated, so, you know, experienced naturally You've developed almost like an instinctual skill set for these. How do you go about training this and developing it in other people who may have never moved? They've grown up in kind of a silo. That's a very complex question with a very long answer. But I think what we try to do in, in, in education and specifically at Duke because when I think of the strong points of Duke, one of the strong points is its ability to create immersive experiences that bring that diversity angle in, that bring in that team angle in. And there's only three things that we have found really drives innovation. It's lack of hierarchy, diversity, and teamwork. So if we can expose people to those three and they see the value of the outcome, then you get sold into the process because you say, wow, I see that this team that was diverse had a better solution to the problem I was given that this, than this team that was homogeneous. So, again, it's one of those things that you have to experience to understand yeah. the value of it because the first part of it is very chaotic. Diverse teams don't work as well together to start with because they need to create a, a set of ground rules. Um, not, not having a command and control kind of organization means you're embracing uh, chaos and you know, a, a certain lack of efficiency. So the starting point is not obvious. You have to see the end point to understand the value. So in a society where you find organizations or industries where there aren't a lot of women you almost have to engineer experiences where men and women are working together to kind of promote the gender justice conversation? Yes. We all look at problems differently. 
So women have a different approach to men, but also different individuals have different approaches. So when you don't have that diversity, you want to engineer it to create that value. I want to continue the conversation with Anne Valerie, but what she's about to unpack is vital. So lock in. It's about a concept called shift. So shift was born out of a CEO survey We conducted last year, and we really asked CEOs, you know, what's top of your mind? What's the burning platform looking like? What what are you preoccupied about? And And the answers to those questions were quite meaningful in in informing our thinking because the CEOs came back and said, um, I believe we don't solve problems fast enough. I don't feel we launch products fast enough. I believe we will be disrupted within the next three years. 76% uh, of the CEO said within the next three years we will be disrupted. Wow. So the, the sense was we're, we're not lean, we're not agile, we're not a startup. Um, so we looked at that and said, right, you, you're not a startup, but you have the, the advantages and capabilities of a, of a big firm. You have the resources and so on. So what are the levers that we're looking at? And, and shift is really the, the, the summary of that. S stands for speed, and that is both speed of decision-making, speed of product to market. It's also about strategy in the moment. How quickly can you turn? Are you the Titanic or are you a speedboat? And how are you seizing opportunities to inform your strategy? Um, human centricity is everything we've seen around design thinking and bringing the human being back into the equation. It always strikes me, at which point did we forget we had customers? How do we bring the customer back in and say, what does that person actually need? Imagination is the whole innovation piece. It's about how we problem solve. So part of imagination is found in human centricity, but it goes beyond that, beyond rapid experimentation. And it's, again, that balance that organizations have to find between efficiency and innovation, between exploration and and delivering within budget, on time, and so on. And then flexibility is about what does the boundary of my firm or my company look like? How much am I letting the outside world in? So personally, I don't like the term future-proofing because I think you don't – That to me, that sounds like bulletproof. You actually want to let the future in. Uh. Um, and so – Part of the equation, again, is internal. Am I allowing job rotation switches? Am I encouraging people to work across departments, across silos? But it's also external. How much of the broader group of stakeholders in the ecosystem am I bringing in to inform my decision-making, my product development, and so on? And the final piece, trust, for me, is the most critical one. Because I believe it's the, it's the currency for all the rest. It Trust allows you to have speed. It allows you to be flexible. It allows you to have experimentation and imagination. And trust is both internal. Do my employees trust me as an employer? And then do my consumers and customers believe in me, in my organization, in my products, that I'm, I'm delivering something that has been done ethically, sustainably, and so on. If I'm a CEO and I'm concerned, 
about gearing myself for mm. this shift process? How do I start positioning my mindset to embrace this process? Well, you have to be able to assess where you stand within all five of those. How am I doing? And, and there will be trade-offs. Sure. Because if you're focusing only on speed, then maybe something happens to trust or to flexibility yes. because you're going to be more command and control. So every case is, is unique and individual. You want to look at your organization and say, well, which ones of these are we doing really, really well? Some organizations doing fantastic with speed, others with flexibility, yet others with trust. For each one of those levers, there's a trade-off. So you need to make that assessment and then decide where you're going to make the trade-offs. Thanks so much, Anne-Valerie, and to everyone who contributed to Episode 1. Before you listen to Episode 2, here's a snippet of just how impactful the human capital conversation was in the life of an attending delegate. My big takeaway was that almost every single presentation had an element of purpose. And I don't know how much we, at time we actually take out to really understand what our purpose is. So I have to walk away and spend some time thinking through that. So you've got work to do and you've been inspired to do this work? Absolutely. I think everybody should do it. I even want my children to do it because I don't want them to go through school university, jobs, without thinking about what they really want to add to the world. Make sure you download episode two to hear more insights from Duke CE leaders, market leaders, the conference host, Shramla Chetty, Duke CE president of global markets, and perhaps most importantly, the young team who helped spearhead getting the conference content out to more than a million young minds.